Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. Welcome to Decentralized, where we explore the social layer of decentralized science. What does it mean to decentralize science? My name is Elijah, and in this series, we'll consider the fundamental aspects of science as a social activity and an institution through the lens of various contributors in the DSI space. The first four episodes are published as a mini-series and lay the groundwork for future conversations. Our goal is to facilitate an exchange of ideas between people working on the solutions to these fundamental problems. Let's start the show. I'm amped. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. It's, uh, you know, something uh, we've been kind of dancing around the past three episodes and uh, glad to really address the issue head on. So uh, thank you again for our speakers joining today, uh, Saba, Jelani, and Eric. And we've got uh, Quinn Amenik, who's uh, now I see with the uh, Lobby 3 account. And uh, yeah, today we're going to be focusing on uh, science as a public good. Is it a public good? Um, I think we're probably all in alignment on, on that uh, from speaking with you all previously. But, uh, you know, how can we really, um, you know, we're just the, the practicalities of that today. Speakers, if you'd like to uh, give a brief introduction, I know you've all been on, on here before, but um, this is uh, you know, a new topic, and, and if you have any uh, you know, opening thoughts, I'd uh, love to get things kicked off. So my name is Jelani. I am one of the core team members at uh, DSI World. Um, I'm a scientist by training, uh, neuroimmunologist, um, and avid crypto enthusiast for a few years now. And so I've been working with at DSI World um, for the last six months, um, if you don't know, DSI World is, is seeking to be uh, a one-stop shop for, for DSI um, projects, an information aggregator that will help facilitate um, everybody's you know, trajectories and travel through this wonderful space that we call DSI. So we just want to make that a lot easier for everybody um, and signal boost projects because we believe that this, this space is, is truly revolutionary to what we consider the paradigm of science. And just so we'll usher in uh, hopefully a new paradigm, an open paradigm, one that truly supports the uh, in a scientific innovation, as well as the individuals, scientists in this space, giving them an opportunity to really flourish both, you know, mentally, financially, spiritually, um, and the like. So thanks for having me here. Yeah, my name is Eric. I'm the head of operations and community at DSI Labs. And at DSI Labs, we are working to build the infrastructure behind science. So we have released our first product, DSI Nodes, in alpha, and have quite a few people on making nodes at the moment. Uh, it is a research object protocol that allows all of the information behind a piece of knowledge, not just a PDF, but code, data, videos, PowerPoints, whatever it is that you want, to all be... Uh, brought together on the same platform. So, yeah, excited to be here. Uh, thank you for hosting and happy to talk about science as a public good. Salva, 
Would you like to Would you like to go next? Hi guys. Uh, so I'm from Crowdfunded Cures. Uh, my background is uh, mainly commercial and IP law. Um, yeah, I did my thesis on gaps in the patent system for drug development. Uh, basically, where um, it's not possible to enforce a monopoly price because um, basically uh, certain therapies are essentially public goods because they're available, the ingredients are available for very cheap. So things like repurposing off-patent drugs, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, diets, and um, uh, psychedelics, uh, plant medicines, things like that. Um, so what we're looking to try and do is build a source of retroactive funding or crowdfunding, um, a source of retroactive funding, or you could think of it like a bounty for open source medicine and also to uh, help engage with governments and health insurers to uh, basically uh, enter uh, these contractual agreements to, to basically pay for clinical trial data uh, as a public good. Um, so without reliance on patents. And I'm glad you're able to join us here for this conversation as well, because, uh, yeah, we had uh, you on for the previous one about funding and IP, but it, uh, we did have an excellent conversation on the last episode about uh, psychedelics and censorship. And so I'm sure that I'll come back around uh, this time. It's been a minute over on the uh, Lobby 3 account. Uh, please do uh, give another introduction to you and uh, the work at Lobby 3 and, and how that's uh, important here. And first, thank you again for putting this together. I know we had a a great conversation last time I was I was on this, so hoping to have a, another good one here. Uh, so Lobby 3 is an impact advocacy DAO, kind of founded by Andrew Yang and a core team of people. And we're kind of feeling out what, what that's like in the Web3 world, you know, how are we going to be going about educating policymakers if we're a DAO and a DAO doing direct lobbying is still kind of ambiguous at this stage, but there are still other opportunities like what, what we abstractly refer to as representing the Web3 community. We're building tools that will allow us to do that at this stage, or we're rather funding the development of certain tools that will allow us to do that. But it's, we're on, on that front of like public advocacy within the Web3 space, specifically with a social impact, public goods kind of slant. And that's, that's Lobby3's angle coming in here. Specifically uh, relating to DSI, we're also a few Lobby3 members, including uh, Flow Science here. We're, we've been involved in conversations about forming a, a group of DSI leaders and practitioners to kind of be a center of gravity for advocacy-related conversations pertaining to DSI technology. And so we've been a DSI coalition so far. Here, DSI Intralize seems like it's a good platform for these kind of DSI advocacy public goods conversations. You've been you've been instrumental in. You know, organizing, uh, getting that uh, the DSI coalition off the ground, and thank you for inviting me to that. It's been excellent conversations uh, within that group, and um, yeah, uh, I've been uh, really enjoying what we're building towards over there. So um, glad to have you here again. And uh, Adam, I see you joined us on the stage as well. So Adam was on uh, previous episode with uh, talking about uh, reputation and censorship. So. Would you like to give a brief introduction to yourself and uh, we'll kick things off here in a minute. Good morning. I am currently running a building SIDAO uh, on the core team and looking to decentralize uh, both access and the knowledge base around psychedelics, knowledge, and wisdom. We've got a great panel today, very diverse speakers with uh, different backgrounds, as you can tell. So I think we're going to have a you know a really good dynamic conversation about this topic and a little bit more brief background about uh, how we we got here at this point in the conversation uh, on these decentralized. So 
first episode was about what is DSI, which is very, very broad in general. We covered uh, science as, uh, you know, in general, what is science? How to decentralize it? What does that mean? Uh, science is a social activity, concepts of refi and DSOS, decentralized society, um, and, and really connect people, the, and essentially kind of like open sourcing it with, you know, connecting the end users of science with the quote unquote developers, right? It's the actual scientists. And uh, same thing with connecting scientists and citizens with funding, right? Um, so that's kind of what the next two episodes, the last two were about uh, funding, IP and ownership, and then uh, reputation and censorship and publication and peer review. And so here we are having covered all this. And, and now today we're discussing is, you know, science as a public good, what does that mean? Um, and so if science is a public good to start things off, how do we align the individual incentives uh, of participants in science, people doing it with the collective good of, of having something as a public good that is accessible to everyone in that sense and in, in the sense of having knowledge available, right? So not being behind paywalls, having publications, you know, literally just accessible to people in a simple way. That, that's my question. How do we align those two interests, right? The, the larger collective and the individuals that are actually doing it. And I know, Eric, uh, again, there's some, some great work on impact certificates and, and retroactive funding, but what are your per personal perspectives on, uh, uh, this is open to anyone, the, uh, you know, sort of addressing this issue and really making science a public good? How can we actually you know, get there? Yeah, I mean, I can just kind of quickly kick us off. I think everything, and it's funny to see, but everything kind of tends to tie back together. So the immediate answer is funding. I think for starters, we need to be thinking regularly about the ways that we fund science and the pros and cons of each individual funding primitive that comes up. So for example, impact certificates are one potential funding primitive for science that have pros and cons. Intellectual property is another funding primitive for science that has pros and cons, but any primitive that we use and any place that we plug it into a larger system of science will have adverse effects that we hadn't necessarily considered. So I think that the very first thing in making science a public good is being incredibly diligent about the ways that we are plugging, about the ways that we are financializing science. So I will go ahead and say, I do believe that the greatest gift the DSI space can give to academia is a sustainable business model for journals, a sustainable non-extractive. So you currently have major journals which are taking 50% profit margins on pretty much every paper that gets published. And then on the other side, you have open access journals, which oftentimes have problems staying afloat. Because while their information is open, their journal itself, kind of the business model behind it, has some serious flaws at times, or they often do have flaws. It's about finding something in between the two of those that doesn't restrict access immediately. I think another thing that's worth considering is kind of the underlying infrastructure itself. So thinking about how we encode the principles of open access into the foundational digital technologies that kind of underlie the larger DSI stack. And that is one that we're doing at DSI Labs is trying to make sure 
that as much of the information as humanly possible is open and accessible to anyone who wants it. I think it's rethinking some of the technology behind the scenes and being very careful and deliberate about funding primitives that are out there. So anyone have thoughts with regards to that? One possible thing with um, any, any potential decentralized models for funding journals, and I know we've, I think we've mentioned this, we touched on this during the decentralized talk that I was last part of, and it was also maybe covered in the recent Twitter space between JournoDAO and DeSciWorld. But I think there could be some interesting territory to explore for um, decentralized editorial kind of boards or control models. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure how much precedent there really is at this stage. I know that the tools that we're exploring with JournoDAO are kind of moving in this direction, but I'm not quite sure if we're at that point yet. I guess I'm wondering what the trade-offs would be if we decentralize editorial control and still be you know, susceptible to whales. The, the quick point is that there could be potentially some business model where you can like tokenize and distribute editorial control as a way of raising funds, and then that can allow for the content itself to not be without paywalls, but maybe you incur some other kind of uh, downsides there as well. Tokenizing, right? And, that, and that's what it comes down to is that I think uh, Web3, right? Decentralizing this governance of the process, I think it has a huge potential to it. Uh, and there was something I published, uh, posted, shared um, a, a talk, a presentation basically about uh, kind of doing that beforehand. And I'll share that link in the comments here in a minute. But uh, yeah, really the, the ability to uh, open up this uh, publishing chain, and, and that's sort of what Eric was talking about with impact certificates, so I guess I'll get, try and give a brief overview of what my, my uh, interpretation of that is, just to give a little background for anybody who's not familiar with the concept of an impact certificate. Uh, it is to basically just a, it's an on-chain uh, record of the, uh, that allows sort of, I guess, a quantitative evaluation of somebody's contribution to science, and so it's kind of like a citation uh, that can be, you know, traced on-chain. Uh, but sort of, I guess, allows some sort of quantitative uh, or, or even qualitative um, estimation of that impact. So, Eric, if you can maybe clarify a little bit more, just that what that looks like. So, I, I, I'm a huge fan of impact certificates in the context that they're a novel funding primitive that we haven't seen before. I think that there are a ton of design considerations which still need to be like very carefully weighed. So not saying it's a perfect, flawless system. Just want to start out with that disclaimer, but that it's interesting and thought-provoking. The gist of an impact certificate is that it gives a scientist the ability to accrue funding throughout the entire life cycle of a project. So you get funding at the beginning, you get funding through the middle of the project, and you can get funding at the end. And that's very different from a lot of original, I guess, traditional funding primitives, like with intellectual property, you're going to get funding exclusively at the end of the project. With grants, you're going to get funding exclusively at the beginning of the project. And finding different ways to allocate money and kind of keep it flowing in is, is definitely unique. So what an impact certificate actually is. Um, it's a larger part of an impact market. But the idea is that you would have, let's say, a large philanthropist or an organization like corporation kind of thing that want to see a specific impact come about in the world. Let's say it's a corporation that is passionate about biotech research, or it's a philanthropist who's passionate environmental disasters, right? 
they could donate a pool of money. Let's say they were willing to give $5 million, $10 million, $100 million, whatever it actually is, towards funding research in that specific area. Any team could spin up and release an impact certificate and basically say, hey, we're going to try and solve this. At the end, what they're all fighting for is that $100 million pool. But that impact certificate, that NFT, can be traded back and forth between organizations and speculators. So that NFT represents their stake in the project. If their project is selected by whoever put down the money at the beginning to win the retroactive prize pool, whoever's holding that NFT would essentially get that money, right? So what's interesting here is the fact that you enable speculation on kind of market dynamics to come into play on science itself while still being able to isolate individual scientists from some of that speculation. So if I start out with a thousand different projects that each have an impact certificate that they've spun up, 900 of them are going to fall by the wayside almost immediately. Someone can buy that impact. The money goes directly to the scientist towards funding science. But then as you start to narrow down the field, each one of those impact certificates becomes more and more valuable. It gets traded back and forth. Every single time that it gets traded, moving towards the end goal of that retroactive pool of funding, a percentage cut goes directly into the pocket of the scientist, of the lab who's actually doing the research. And through this, you can trade back and forth, trying to identify, uh, using market dynamics to try and identify who would eventually end up with that retroactive funding pool all the meanwhile, putting cash into the pockets of scientists. Super cool. Yeah, no, Jelani, please go take it next. I was going to say, there's a, there's, that's a very interesting approach. It's, it sounds like a comprehensive sort of model, and uh, I'd love to hear what uh, the other sort of approaches are to, or comments on that are as well. So Jelani, please take it away. So Eric, I think it has a lot of potential in terms of helping provide you know, alternative ways to go about funding. So definitely a pain point in science is funding. But I think a pain point specifically for science as a public good is not so much the funding, but where the funding comes from and the strings attached to said funding. So with regards to the impact uh, NFT or impact certificate, is it just as susceptible to, let's say, big pharma or, or, or you know, heavily invested whale regulating exactly what can be shared from that data that is generated from that prize pool? And, you know, how does it address that? Because I think that's, to me personally, that's one of the underpinnings that limits science as a public good, right? It is control of what is expressed and what is out there for the public to view. Fantastic question. And this is the one that I continue to ask myself. Like, it, there's a fine line between science and research and development, which gets confused so often. Some of the most incredible discoveries that have ever been made and over the course of human history came from just kind of general grant money thrown at a brilliant person without a specific direction to move in. So it's kind of the financialization of science that turns it into research and development, and that's very much kind of what you're talking about with the strings attached here. I think funding, finding quality systems 
to fund that discovery as opposed to specific targeted innovation is difficult. I do think that impact certificates can move science in a positive direction there as compared to other funding sources. So one of the things that is powerful is the fact that there is a level of seven between the funders and the exact results of the project, which is done through these market dynamics. So yes, let's say I, I, I pick a company, Monsanto wants to do something involving uh, gene editing, right? Instead of funding a specific research project with a specific goal, they can say, we are passionate about this one specific aspect of gene editing. Here's $20 million to whoever can come up with the solution to this problem or whoever's willing to do incredible research on this. It gives a lot more flexibility for a scientist to actually pursue their own pathway as opposed to being explicitly directed from the beginning. So, yeah. This is Adam. Can I jump in on this? Yeah. One of, the, one of the challenges with this is that when you're doing research, in order to identify the win conditions in a way that's not gamifiable, you got like, it's hard to predict a discovery before it's made. That's the definition of a discovery, or at least like a breakthrough discovery. So identifying the win conditions is really difficult. Like the way XPRIZE does it is they have a committee that determines it, right? But then you're right, you know, that's not, that's not in alignment with a code is law situation. So my concern is that most large organizations that are capable of putting up a 20 or a Huller prize are not going to want to give up the ability to authenticate that information. And then we, you're basically right back where we started. That's not my not helpful concern about this whole thing. <laughs> no, that's fair. What, what do you mean by authenticate the information? Well, who determines the victory condition for the, the $20 million incentive prize in this scenario? Oh, okay. So who determines impact? How do we measure impact? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, if, uh, and if you understand well enough to, to determine the impact before you've started, then yeah, it's not a discovery. <laughs> In the healthcare space, we've got some very unique tools out there that can, can be used to measure impact, like, um, you know, clinical outcomes in a clinical trial. Obviously, if, if your clinical trial results in improved clinical outcomes versus usual care, then that is some very real impact and that's linked uh, to clinical trial data. Um, so I think medicine has, has a lot of opportunities here with particular uh, medical uh, clinical trial data. There's another measure called a quality, quality adjusted life year, although it's somewhat um, subjective. Um, that's basically how um, health insurers or at least, well, single payers mainly kind of outside of the U.S., assess the value of a new drug. They just determine, okay, how many quality adjusted life years does this drug add on average? And, and then they're willing to pay, say, $30,000 per quality. So, you know, I think we do have existing tools to, to measure impact in, in certain niches. Um, it, but I agree with, with Adam that, you know, the incentives, the, the design of, 
of the criteria for an outcome payment is extremely important. And obviously, you know, you want to prevent gaming and things. Um, but, you know, th these, these things are a growing area. There's a lot of interest in particularly innovation prizes. So the U.S. government now has something called the, the America Competes Act, where the uh, federal agencies are allowed to authorize uh, incentive innovation prizes up to 100 million or 50 million, I think without Congress approval. So, so it's an actively, um, uh, there's probably active research or hopefully in this area. And, and if, if Web3 can sort of take a, take a, um, and some initiative in this space, I think that would be really interesting and particularly because of the, you know, the, the fact that with Web3, you, you can talk about, um, you know, coin market caps of a billion dollars um, and, and raising hundreds of millions of dollars in 30 seconds. Um, so, so we, we sort of have the technology, um, uh, it's just about finding the right use case. Yeah. I, I just said one, one possible solution to the problem Adam brought up about who arbitrates victory conditions for these kind of grant like, um, disbursements. And this gets at something that, uh, Jelani, uh, flow science and I talked about in the first decentralized session is that it seems like gatekeeping is still necessary at certain checkpoints or milestones here. I mean, I'm not speaking as a scientist, I'm speaking sort of as an, as an outside observer here. Um, but that process, that like action or that step, that mechanism of gatekeeping can to some extent be decentralized. So in lieu of any objective kind of like smart contract um, like conditions for what qualifies a disbursement, if you have a fund that has tokenized voting power over it, you can have essentially a DAO vote for whether or not research qualifies kind of disbursement that, that could be one one solution for this I, I think the risk of that is it's actually the mechanism for retroactive public goods funding where basically they decide afterwards um, the DAO kind of decides how much uh, this particular uh, innovation is worth I think the, the advantage is the flexibility the disadvantage is this kind of um, uh, it's basically like an it's called an interim clause where essentially you're at the mercy of the DAO. So you have to kind of assume that everyone's going to play fair. Um, I'm more of a fan of, of setting out the criteria in advance. And if you meet the criteria, like a contract, you know, like if you bridge, then you, you get a hundred, you know, a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars or whatever, you know, it shouldn't be up to a DAO whether you, you fulfilled the specifications or not uh, of the bridge. However, um, the, the, the flexibility of, of a, a sort of a DAO arrangement is, is, is good, but as long as the DAO members are fair and they're not kind of going to sort of uh, jip the, the investors that have paid so much money for this innovation at the, at, the last, um, at the last mile. At the end of the day, someone's got to make the call, right? It's either going to be code or a DAO or a state actor or a whale or an institution. Like someone's got to determine, yes, this bridge was built to spec, you know, yes or no. Usually you would set out the specs in advance and sign a contract and, and, and it would, there would be, if there was any deviation from that, there would be sort of change control. But if there's too much flexibility around payouts, then I think the whole house of cards falls down because you might not have a investor actually come in and, and, and want to invest on the basis of an uncertain outcome. Okay, but back to the bridge, you know, okay, so someone has to, like, literally go out to a bridge, you know, a physical human has to go out to a bridge and assess the steel was used, you know, the appropriate brackets were used, like, that, that, that assessor is fundamentally a vulnerability. 
So you, you could pay the assessor off. You could, you know, you could, you know, civil attack the, the, that assessor. Like that's, you know, or the assessor is a, you know, corrupt politician. That's what I'm saying. There's, there's always vulnerabilities in the system. So we, I guess what I'm saying is we have to be very careful about, about this up front. I think that's actually a really great point. And one of the, the, the ways that I envision this and whether it be practical or not, or pragmatic or not, is that, you know, my definition of, of a public good is something that is open and access accessible to as many people as possible, right? It should be easily accessible to all. And so making it such that we don't necessarily have, so in the ethos of decentralization, we don't need to have one person be the assessor or at least have that information out to as many eyes as possible is one way to kind of help combat this, this nature of, of, you know, privatization or corruptibility, right? So specific to me, above the, the impact certificate, I would argue that the DSI nodes um, product that is being developed is more on par to what is considered um, open to a public good than not. Right. And this from just, again, all from my all from my own opinion, the idea here is that this comprehensive unit of knowledge that I hope and arguably would probably be everybody allows an individual to get the full scope or at least as comprehensive of a scope of whatever particular data point it's looking at. They're looking at um, in one hopefully digestible format and having access to all of this information in one easy way. I think is what is truly going to open up the concept of science as a public good, right? From a, from a, like an ease perspective, not having to go to, you know, nature and then back it up by going to some other source and some other source, some other source, having in one easy spot is one way. So that's just an ease of stream of information. And then again, uh, providing it to people who will be the, the quote unquote gatekeepers or the evaluators such that, you know, to, to Sava and Adam's point, um, but also the layman. So the regular Joe Blow who is interested in the particular topic doesn't quite necessarily know, but has access to that same information and can therefore open it up for discussion. Um, again, discussion being a really important part in, in public goods and the characteristic of a public good. Um, I see that tool and funding is important too. that kind of information conveying tool speaks more to the impact of DSI on science being a public good than necessarily the funding infrastructures that we're going to be using to then facilitate those future discoveries. I could not agree with that more. Um, I think that the DSI nodes tool set is actually a huge part of how you enable science as a public good. And I think I kind of kicked us off by saying it's about the funding and it's about the infrastructure. So <clears throat> just want to 100% support that statement. I think it's it's not even a question of is the data open? It's is the data organized well enough that people can find what they need? Is it findable? Is it accessible? Can it, is it interoperable? Is it reusable? Some of these different questions around how we structure the data and how we make sure that the scientific ledger of record itself is owned by owned and governed by the scientific community is absolutely critical. I don't think that we can make every single piece of science that's ever been made fully accessible to anyone who wants it. There are always going to be privacy restrictions. That's not a problem. But what we can do is make sure in, like, 
actually just building it the right way that the scientific ledger of record itself cannot be controlled by any singular individual, cannot be, I guess, gatekept by anyone, that it is owned by the larger community. So just want to say yes, 100%. I think that the Nodes platform does more for open access than anything else that I've seen in the entirety of DSI. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome to, to get to work on. Thanks, Jelani. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the the things that we're doing that I'm doing in DeSci space is not necessary, but I think that you know Molecule and their IPNFT railway has somewhat not solved, but at least progressed the notion of funding science, which I think is fundamentally what everybody needs. Right, everybody needs to eat. Money is 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 uh, crucial. That's not what's going to solve science as a public good. I think you know DeSci Labs and its and its collaborators view on these new units of knowledge alongside talent and scurf and other opportunity and other other protocols that are looking at how to decentralize peer reviewing such that it's you know open to not just three peer reviewers as been has has been the archaic structure um in the past but you know widely spread across peers and of different fields and different backgrounds this, I think, is what's going to add validity and credence. Yes, like validity to the scientific realm and also open it up to interpretation and discussion. I think one thing that has been lost a lot in the scientific, in the traditional scientific scheme is discussion on points that are important in terms of our infrastructure and our progression in science, right? You know, data being siloed and being hidden prohibits inherently the discussion or at least a comprehensive and true discussion in determining what is worth pursuing what is not worth pursuing how do we solve these issues and how do we not solve these issues and also inherently combats the concept of misinformation right i think and and flo i wanted to speak to you about this um in terms of of a concept for a potential other uh series but ethics right ethics in DSI, i think is going to be a large topic I've, i've brought this up previously um and it's going to impact the notion of science as a public good, right? Opening up science to everybody, providing information to everybody. And you're right, you know, certain things have to be kept private. But what is kept private? And how do we balance privacy and, and the concept? How do we balance privacy with the concept of public good being completely open? I think these are all interesting topics that we're going to have to face if we are going to champion this notion of science as a public good within this space. Yeah, that's that's a really big point. And, and within our last couple of minutes here, I wanted to bring up the concept of something back. Actually, Eric brought up earlier was this distinction between research or science and and R&D research and development. I think, you know, maybe like applied science and and, you know, we've got basic research and publishing things, you know, via IPNFTs, like if we're publishing manuscripts or data right on a DSI node, um, you know, and that data becomes available as, as basic research. But at what level, uh, you know, is if somebody's commercializing that, or you know, what level, where do we sort of uh, draw the line in terms of incentivizing, or you know, to include those things, um, you know, in terms of like licensing, you know, we've got luckily we have Sav on on the panel here, uh, who maybe can provide some some expertise in this answer. But like in terms of should all science be like licensed with a CC zero like license? Uh, should there be some sort of uh, you know, uh, incentive there to to continue promoting uh, this this decentralization and access all the way up the chain or out into the applied world? 
from my perspective, I, I just see things in, in as terms of contracts, and and it's all basically incentives all the way down. You know, even with with uh, open source, you know, people are incentivized to to publish their contribution and they get some kudos from that from the community and you've got uh you know academics are incentivized to publish or perish so you know and those incentives are, are different in open source versus say you know the closed source where your your incentives might be okay we've got the right to exclude others from access to this information and we can charge a royalty and things like that so um, you know, there, there is this traditional tension between open source and when we kind of, you know, move to closed source. And typically it, it tends to be that, that basic science is like the open source stuff. And then, and then eventually when you get to applied translational science, it's closed source. But you can actually create models where um, you can open source the, the, the applied stuff. And, and just uh, pay it out, like do a buyout. Um, and this is where I think crypto and the funding things, sorry to bring it out to the funding, but I, I think the infrastructure is is, is, is super important, but the, the infrastructure that allows people to sort of, you know, raise $50 million to buy the US constitution, which, which you know, on the record, I, I think is ridiculous. Um, but imagine if we could if we could raise like X number of dollars to open source nature, you know, and, and have the community then, uh, as a community, decide how, how to run it and edit it. And, and it becomes, and they decide it's going to be an open source journal. And, and, and so, you know, these sorts of things, I think, are, you know, different ways of thinking about um, incentives and funding, I think, is, is that's, that's quite powerful around Web3. And, and um, but yeah, we're infinitely flexible how we can design smart contracts. It's, it's really just about deciding what, what we want to do with it. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Does anybody else uh, have any, any other thing to chime in? I think that's perfect because, yeah, the, the infinite flexibility of smart contracts. And, and that, that I think really is where I'm sort of settling on it too is it's, um, you know, there has to be a balance and sort of this alignment between the people who are doing the funding, who are doing the work, and the people who are end up, you know, using the results of the research products uh, themselves. And, and that ultimately is going to be different in different situations. Um, so having that flexibility is, is crucial. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd also like to second that emphasis on the infrastructure because, I mean, speaking as, as an outsider, as far as peer review is, is concerned, uh, in general, I kind of see that kind of centralized decision making because it's easier to come to a consensus with fewer people than with more people. I kind of see that as like, a, as like an organizational tractor. And if we're talking about changing attractors, then that almost necessarily means we're talking about changing infrastructure. And so I, I think a lot of it comes down to the tools that we're using to make coming to nuanced consensus more feasible for larger numbers of people. That seems like really that's something we would almost have to contend with if we wanted to change this. 100%. Get governance is the most interesting thing um, about, yeah, it's DAOs and governance uh, technology. It's amazing. Yeah, I just want to come in and say I agree with that. I think that there's a lot of power behind it. I think that there is also a lot of power behind just generic blockchain technology and the fact that we can make things permanent and immutable. Uh, the fact that we can actually take a lot of these underlying concepts in science, like the ledger of record, and control them through code and governance as such. One of the things that I'm excited to see is how governance continues to evolve in the space. I think it's been really powerful to go from initial experimentation with like coin voting, one coin, one vote, 
to some of the things that other protocols are doing now. Like, for example, Optimism's bicameral legislation uh, and how they're handling governance on chain. I think that that is absolutely fantastic and something that we should be striving for more as a space. Another thing to kind of consider is how we handle governance at this earliest stage. Because, quite frankly, the people who should be governing science, governing some of the protocols, the DAOs underneath the hood, should be scientists. And at this point, scientists are not in Web3. So how do we deal with that conundrum that we need governance at the earliest stage, but the ultimate folks who should be governing the system aren't here yet to help out? So that's a, another interesting question that I've been grappling with for a little while. Would love to hear any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, can, I think I can speak to that. Um... Because you know, I think I think web the DeFi space is 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 not fragmented but compartmentalized into different aspects: funding, infrastructure, and then community. And community being, you know, not just people who are here, but how do we onboard more people? And that's specifically the mission at DeFi World: is how do you, you know, how do we make it such that it is not just appealing but easy for non-Web three natives to then enter into the space? And we think in in a lot of the products that we're developing, right? And so one of our main initiatives that we've taken on now is directly reaching out to and co trying to collaborate with universities, but a pushback with the ivory tower mentality. But if not those, then internal structures of universities like student organizations and the like. And they have been a lot more receptive to this notion of this cool new, you know, not only hip, but this cool new structure or, or paradigm that is, grow, that is growing in science and they have a lot more eyes and willingness to interact with them. And so we, on our own end, are exploring ways to incentivize, not just collaborate, but incentivize, you know, onboarding of students, onboarding of this nascent population of scientists who, I mean, I think everybody can agree to the fact that most revolutions are not started by the old guard. Right. They profit from what's already existing, but it's from the new individuals in the space. And so these these nascent scientists, I think, are a major focus. And as of so far, they seem very interested. And I think the, the issue here with Desai, to Eric's point, is that it's just we're I mean, to us, it seems like big and shiny and new. But if you go out, if you step outside of Desai and you speak with people, it's it's relatively unheard of. Right. Like. Uh, you know, anecdotally, Vitalik, whom somebody in our team spoke with, is not even really up and up on the idea of what DSI serves as a purpose, right? And this is a major individual in the Web3 space. So think about outside of the Web3 space, we're unheard of. I think organically, people will filter in, and scientists especially, because we are solving problems that they deal with, that we deal with, I specifically as a scientist know, deal with on the daily, I think it's just, it's really just the information. They just need to hear about us. They need to hear about us and they need to be, we need to find a way to make it palatable to them in such a way that they want to participate and they see the value. And, you know, scientists inherently are creative, or at least, you know, usually are creative. And they can theory craft the, the ultimate end goal that might come from seeing just a little bit of information of what's being created in DSI. DSI, the DSI, I'm going to bring it back to, because Eric, you're here. The DSI nodes, I think, excites every scientist that I've ever spoken to and that I've ever kind of shilled the project to are like <laughs> amazing, you know, so it's just information. It, honestly, it's fun to showcase like the nodes platform 
I genuinely enjoy showing it to Web2 skeptics of blockchain because they immediately come back at me and they're like, wait, you can do that? I'm like, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> There's actual power behind this technology, I promise. And it's a great onboarding point for some of these other, like, for example, primitives like IP NFTs. Um, I, I think it's a great way to get people into the space and just get excitement about what this can actually be. So I, I completely agree with you on that. It is a blast to get to showcase the nodes. That's my favorite part of my job. I've got to get in there. I'm on, I think I'm on the waiting list, but uh, I've been I've been uh, putting out a manuscript that is my like test data set. So I'd love to love to talk with you, Eric, about potentially getting that on the nodes. But um, yeah, so this has been a fantastic conversation. I think uh, we are really addressing a lot of these major issues in ways and this pluralistic approach, this Web three approach of trying new things. It's it's an experiment, right? And that's the best part. I think my that I really enjoy about Visa is it's it's a giant experiment in Web three in general. Oh, my God.